This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2017 Launchpad Feature Competition. Now in its fifth year, the Launchpad has helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. Paper Team listeners can save $15 off their entry by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout. For more information on their current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm also Alex Friedman. I'm, <laughs> I'm stealing uh, his name. No, I'm Nick Watson. You can find me on Twitter at underscore wow. Nick Watson. And today we're going to be talking about inspiration versus stealing, like Nick just did right now. What is the difference between the two, and where is the line in TV writing? Let's find out. <laughs> And now for our Paper Scraps segment, we have an email from our listener, Ryan, and it goes as follows. Hi, Alex. Your website and podcast were the only places I could find that really broke down the process of spec writing, because I have original scripts written, but this is my first attempt at a spec script. The resources you provide are really helpful. I was able to find a copy of the pilot script for the show I was trying to create a spec for. I do have a question for you. How many seasons or how many episodes would you suggest watching of a TV show you've never seen, but you're interested in writing a spec for in order to understand the characters and the structure of the show? Thank you, Ryan. Well, that is actually a great question regarding specs, because I really think the research phase of specking is one of the most underrated part of spec writing. Uh, And especially considering that a great spec is supposed to showcase your ability to kind of meld your voice with that of the shorter. Assuming you have a good idea of the show you want to spec, obviously the ideal number of episodes you should be watching would be most or all of it. But the reality, though, is how quickly you sort of get the show, the characters, is entirely dependent on the series that you pick. A comedy like Brooklyn Nine-Nine with a very clear, repeatable structure and archetypical characters will be faster to understand than something more narratively complex like The Americans, at least assuming that the goal is to imitate it. If you're doing a really serialized show or AAA premium drama, I really recommend watching most, if not all, of the content to really understand the narrative and character arcs. If it's something broader, like a network show with some kind of formula, then it's about really watching enough to understand that repeatable structure and thematic elements through line of arcs being explored for each of the characters. Real fun would be the first few episodes to get the basic setup, and then some key episodes throughout, with most of the recent ones to see how they've evolved throughout the show. Now, I would also suggest watching the worst episodes of the series, ones rated unfavorably on whatever review aggregator you use. It may sound counterintuitive to watch the worst episodes, but now that you have a good basis for what a normal episode is, you can contrast it to what viewers did not find good in that show, and they should actually highlight elements you may want to avoid or common pitfalls. Watching the best episodes can be helpful as well, but beware it is not uncommon for those episodes to be fan favorites specifically because they break the mold, are kind of offbeat, or change something major in the serialized story. As such, they may not be normal episodes and therefore won't necessarily be good compass to guide you to what a spec of that show should be similar to. And the same can be said for season premieres or finales, which are there to really set up or pay off bigger questions rather than the day-to-day episode, which is something you would probably be specking. 
So let's talk about what is an original idea. Well, the concept of originality kind of differs by culture. Originality only really became this ideal that people were striving towards in Western culture starting in the 18th century. In Shakespeare's time, it was actually more common to appreciate the similarity with some kind of classical work that they admired. In Shakespeare's time, it was actually more common to appreciate the similarity with a classical work that they admired, and Shakespeare himself avoided what he called unnecessary invention. These days, you're often seeing things pitched as it's this meets that. You know, people want touchstones and reference points that have already worked while adding something new. They want to see that it's familiar enough that it has worked, but different enough that it can work again and is not just a straight ripoff of something else. I think for TV especially, there are so many more hurdles to jump over and gatekeepers to get past and, and constant ongoing marketing to consider how does this TV idea cut through the noise and distinguish itself as original and interesting that it's harder to get literal carbon copies of shows in the same way we sometimes see in movie making. Also, making a show is a longer process, and it's between a smaller group of power players and networks, so people catch wind of other projects going on, and shows can get canned in development because they are too similar to something else that is going to happen sooner. Then again, you look at the five time travel shows we had <laughs> last season, so you never know. In my mind, really, the debate of stealing versus inspiration comes down to one thing, and that is execution. Television is in part a business of ideas. You'll be hired to be in a TV writer's room and a staff of multiple people, and you'll be spending weeks and months coming up with scenes, characters, scenarios, arcs that are either fresh or interesting. And that means you'll be pitching ideas upon ideas every hour of every day. But what really separates stealing from inspiration is the execution of those ideas. Look at the difference between Armageddon and Deep Impact. Just because the premise is similar doesn't mean it's the same movie. What differentiates you from other writers is your execution of those ideas. If you are outright copying someone's execution, that's drastically different from copying someone's idea. That's why you cannot copyright ideas. Yeah, it's all about execution. If you steal our ideas, we will execute you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, as we said in our previous episode, uh, PT23, on copyright, idea, ownership, and theft, you can't be prosecuted for stealing an idea. Only it's express execution on a page, whether that's a script or an outline or a treatment. But as we've said, there's also this thing called parallel thinking. I mean, you hear about it all the time. Oh, I had this great idea for a show. Someone must have stolen it off of my Twitter or whatever because there's a show coming out on Fox next year with the exact same premise. What am I going to do? Should I sue them? Or someone <laughs> submitted a spec episode to the fellowships and the next season there's an episode of the show that's just like that. Oh my God, they stole my idea. No, it's just what they call parallel thinking. It happens all the time in the music world. People write very similar songs. They don't even realize that they're stealing it from someone else. Like a like said, Armageddon, Deep Ink, Pat, stuff comes out at the same time. Just this year, there was Rough Night and Girls Trip, and people were like, oh, this is the same movie, and then you go and see them, they're very different movies. It's just a similar idea, and it's all about the execution. As much as it sounds like a dirty word, I think we want to communicate to, to people that everyone steals. Wow. I don't steal. I'm a law-abiding citizen. No. <laughs> Nobody creates in a vacuum. Think about why you are writing in the first place. You were clearly inspired by something or someone. Maybe it's a play. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a TV show. Maybe it's this very podcast. Whatever it is, it's ingrained in your psyche. We're all living in a culture that permeates our every creation. So by definition, you cannot create something entirely original that just does not exist. When you're pitching ideas in the room or brainstorming a concept for your new pilot, you're obviously going to be jumping off from a certain point. And personally, I love to reference things in my pitches because they're kind of cultural shortcuts that hopefully the person listening to the pitch will understand. And I mean, if they don't, they can still appreciate the story I'm telling. 
And when we say that you're kind of stealing or borrowing from something, it doesn't have to be the whole thing and slapping a new name on it. You can also just use something as the baseline or something to get inspired, right? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some uh, structural archetypes you could look at when you're sort of breaking a pilot. Uh, I've said it many times, television is a structural medium. So it's not uncommon to look at other people's pilots or episodes to sort of imitate or base or base your structure uh, from. For example, if you're writing a science fiction space opera show, you may want to look at the pilots of classic science fiction series to see how they explore their worlds, their characters, or in, and also uh, how they did their exposition. And when you break down something to its original quality and use those elements as inspiration, that's drastically different from ripping something off altogether when it's completed. If your characters start walking down a hallway and talking in a fast-paced way at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean you're stealing Aaron Sorkin style. And if you're emulating the structure of Lost because you're also writing a non-linear pilot, that also doesn't mean you're stealing JJ style. Again, it comes down to how you execute that story. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of people who will start with the structure of another movie or pilot and its beats on like index cards and then lay their story out over it and see what kind of things they should be hitting. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the same where you can't change it around. It just means you have a strong foundation you know has worked before while you're telling your original idea or execution on top of that skeleton. In your worst case scenario, you can write like an alternate universe fan fiction, tweak it as much as possible, and you got a new story. That's uh, kind of what Fifty Shades of Grey is a Twilight fan fiction. So exactly, never know. I mean, one of the greatest movies of our time, Star Wars, was basically taken from Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. Magnificent Seven was from Seven Samurai. Fistful of Dollars was Yojimbo. What we're saying is, if you want to make a good movie, <laughs> steal something from Kurosawa. BRB. <laughs> All right, so people often talk about paying homage to something uh, versus copying it. Uh, given that this word is from your people, maybe you can shed some insight into that. <laughs> homage. Homage, yes. I'll be speaking in French for the rest of this podcast. No, uh, Stranger Things actually is kind of an interesting example in that copying versus homage category. A lot of people thought of the show as kind of groundbreaking or amazing in a lot of ways. And although it's an interesting show, personally... I wasn't as in love with it. One of the main reasons why is because Stranger Things kind of siphoned off a lot of the cultural imageries from those 70s and 80s horror movies to cement their visual and narrative style. Now, personally, I love all these 80s horror science fiction movies they're trying to emulate. But the thing is, I wasn't as invested because, in my mind, it was sort of a pale copy of the original movie or movies. Uh, and even on the story level, I also did not find the payoff compelling in of itself because the show was heading a certain way, which to me was pretty predictable, specifically because of the tropes they were using and homages. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that sometimes people respond to these things uh, because... <laughs> Some people won't know what you're paying homage to, or they won't be as intimately familiar with those touchstones as others. So if it's done with enough nuance, or if people aren't super familiar with it, it'll just appear to be a great original idea. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of people who watch Stranger Things and hadn't watched Steven Spielberg's entire back catalog, and they were like, wow, this is so original and fascinating. It's kind of like that quote, sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, maybe sufficiently good homage is indistinguishable from originality. Isn't that a bit like, frustrating, though, if you're the original creator and people assume that the guy 
who copied you sort of made that up? I mean, it happens all the time. Look at Jeff Buckley and Leonard Cohen and Hallelujah, like things like that. So sometimes it happens. So basically you're saying that Stranger Things is a cover of Spielberg's movies. (laughs) It's a a pub band cover. Oh boy. Well, I prefer the original. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, And it's like that quote. uh, I think it was actually originally from T.S. Eliot, although it's been attributed to Picasso these days. And T.S. Eliot said, immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better, or at least something different. The good poet welds his theft into a whole feeling which is unique, utterly different from that which it was torn. The bad poet throws it into something which has no cohesion. And then it later kind of became attributed to Picasso, who said, good artists copy, great artists steal. I think the the big takeaway there, the difference is in transformative storytelling. If you're just doing a one-to-one remake, it doesn't make sense. But if you're adapting it and putting in your own flavor, into it, then that's what originality in our generation kind of is. Look at those things that people call modern retellings, like all those stories that are in public domain that people have access to. How many times have we seen a modern take on Romeo and Juliet or uh, fairy tales or Aesop's fables? I mean, people steal from Shakespeare and even Shakespeare stole from other people. Yeah, I mean, this very podcast is a remake of Hamlet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we're paying homage to script notes. Uh, It's script notes meets... uh, I don't know. Children of Tendu. I'm, uh, I'm cosplaying as both Javi and John August. How about that? <laughs> it's funny. I've caught myself saying absolutely a lot, which John August says in his podcast. <laughs> so I feel like we are just straight up stealing from them. Oh, my God. And I think this entire episode was literally stolen from another episode they did. And we're just regurgitating everything <laughs> said in a poor version of it. No, we're paying homage, Alex. Sorry. Sorry. It's funny because even if you look at Aesop's fables, in Anglophone countries, you guys discuss those fables as Aesop's fables. Mm -hmm. But in France, those fables are most commonly referred to as fables from Jean de la Fontaine, which were published in the 17th century. So there's quite a gap of 2,000 years Who did it first? Who did it first? I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, so many things are based off of these ancient Greek myths and plays as well. Like you can go all the way back to Socrates and and Plato and all that kind of thing and and look at these classic story structures that are repeated over and over. And that kind of leads us into the the modern day incarnation of that, which is the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell that I'm sure everyone's heard about by now. Uh, And is mostly, you know, applicable to features, although, you know, there are elements of it that you can definitely find in television as well. Vogler sort of adapted into his writer's journey and those archetypes structural archetypes and narrative archetypes were adapted into the lion king was one movie that sort of launched that whole concept and i think that kind of brings us around to this point of like how many different stories are there to tell one one (laughs) yeah so you go and if you literally google right now how many different plots are there you will get on the first page, a number of articles from apparent like prof- professionals or professors or whatever, everything from two, three, six, seven, eight, nine, twenty, and thirty-six. Not thirty-five. Come on, it's exactly <laughs> exactly thirty-five. Stories. So everyone thinks that they are right about you can boil down all your stories into this exact number. So we're going to go over a couple of them that we think may have some merit or at least are an interesting way to look at it. But, you know, you hear that phrase, everything's been done before. And you have to wonder, over the 5,000 years since we started recording human history and telling stories, how are we still doing anything new with all these constant remakes and reimaginings, movies coming out in the same year with the same premise? Well, 
as we said, Hero's Journey with Joseph Campbell, the monomyth is what they call it. He's saying that essentially all stories come down to one thing. Uh, and you can kind of look at the TV version of that with Dan Harmon's story circles as well. But then we're going to slowly move up the number of stories as we go along. Uh, someone says that there are only two stories. The novelist John Gardner said in his book, The Art of Fiction, Notes on Craft for Young Writers in 1984, and this is kind of a rough paraphrase, but he said, there are only two possible stories. A man goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, what a lot of people consider the two types of TV pilots to be like. Either it's a day in the life of, like the pilot of ER, or it's a new guy on the job and we discover the world through them. Um, so I think that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. Yeah, exactly. And then as we kind of go up the chain, there is also this other thing which has been kind of widely referred to called the seven basic plots. And this comes out of a book in 2004 by a guy called Christopher Booker. And he was doing a Jungian-influenced analysis, the psychologist Carl Jung and his whole idea of the collective unconscious and these archetypes and certain things that keep popping up over and over in stories that, that have some kind of deeper connection to our unconscious and things that resonate with us. So he said there are seven main stories and we'll kind of go through them here briefly. The first one is called Overcoming the Monster, and this is where the protagonist sets out to defeat an antagonistic force, which is often evil, and which threatens the protagonist and or the protagonist's homeland. You see this in movies like Dracula, Seven Samurai, Star Wars, and New Hope. The other one is Rags to Riches. So that's when the poor protagonist acquires things such as power, wealth, or a mate before losing it all and gaining it back upon growing as a person. So movies like Cinderella, uh, Aladdin, Jane Eyre, Greed Expectations. Mm -hmm. Number three is the quest. The protagonist and some companions set out to acquire an important object or get to a location, facing many obstacles and temptations along the way. That's in stories like The Iliad, Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones, and Dude, Where's My Car? Okay, the ultimate MacGuffin. Uh, number four is Voyage and Return, and that's when the protagonist goes to a strange land and after overcoming the threats it poses to him or her returns with experience like the wizard of oz mad max fury road apollo 13 finding nemo spirited away although i will mention that Iliad is kind of that as well so i don't know about that yeah i think that there is even some overlap between these seven so it's not a perfect thing by any means uh the next category it goes over is five comedy uh, this is a light and humorous character with a happy or cheerful ending a, or dramatic work in which the central motif is the triumph over adverse circumstances, resulting in a successful or happy conclusion. They're saying essentially that all these comedies have a happy ending. Uh, it also kind of refers to this pattern where the conflict becomes more and more confusing as we go on, but then it's made clear in a single clarifying event at the end. A lot of romances and rom-coms would fall into this category. Much Ado About Nothing, Bridget Jones's Diary, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Good lord, it's kind of the ultimate trope of misunderstanding. Like, uh -huh. everything can be cleared with one simple solution. Number six is tragedy. That's when the protagonist is a hero with one major character flaw or great mistake, which is ultimately their undoing. They're unfortunate and evokes pity at their folly and the fall of a fundamentally good character. So, stories like Macbeth, Bonnie and Clyde, or even Breaking Bad. And lastly, seven is rebirth. During the course of the story, an important event forces the main character to change their ways, often making them a better person, like Beauty and the Beast or Christmas Carol or Despicable Me. So, yeah, I don't know what you think about these, Alex. I think that everyone's in such a rush to just, like, boil everything down to its bare bones that you, they don't kind of understand the nuance between... Each of these stories could have multiple of those elements in them, or those two things are close enough that you're just adding one element and calling it a whole different story. It's, it's kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of those um, concepts are interesting on a intellectual level, or purely academically, but practically speaking, I think... Um, at best, they're jumping off points, but 
execution wise it kind of puts everything in the same box right it's kind of like the save the cat book it's yeah. interesting if you're first starting out but at some point you kind of have to um remove the shackles and start to bend the rules mm -hmm. and i think when we go too far down the rabbit hole we get stuff like this where people have been feeding stories into computers and, try literally. <laughs> and trying to get them to tell us what the fundamental stories are so it's like they put a book inside the cd-rom player like <laughs> just insert it through the floppy disk drive and like yeah so some researchers from the university of vermont and the university of adelaide which i believe is the one back in australia uh collected a computer generated story arcs for nearly 2,000 works of fitch fiction classifying each one into six core types of narratives based on what happens to the protagonist and they did this by using emotional arcs measured by and i quote the average happiness of work <laughs> Words, using uh, this kind of ranking system for more than 10,000 frequently used words, and they ended up being ranked by uh, crowdsourcing on the website Mechanical Turk, which you've mentioned before. And the 10 words that uh, people ranked as happiest were laughter, happiness, love, happy, laughed, laugh, laughing, <laughs> excellent, laughs, and wow. joy. Um, I'm smiling right now. I'm so happy. Right. And the 10 words. So essentially, if you, what if there's like an evil person laughing all the time in the <laughs> thing? Like, that doesn't mean it's happy. And the 10 words that people ranked as least happy were terrorist, suicide, rape, terrorism, murder, death, cancer, killed, kill, and die. Wow. So I guess you can't ever have a happy story where someone dies. I don't know. Where to bring the podcast down? <laughs> yes, I'm very words. sorry. The 10, 10 set. It's like a BuzzFeed article. The 10 saddest <laughs> words that will make you depressed. Oh, boy. So, uh, and then basically what they did after they fed all these stories through the computer, it came out to these six kinds of stories. And they are, and even these sound kind of similar to each other, rags to riches going up, you know, rising from rags to riches, riches to rags, which is falling. Uh, man in a hole, which is a fall, then a rise. These are like the emotional arcs of the protagonist's journey. Then, Not literally falling in yeah. a hole and then rising. Out of and then uh, Icarus, there's a big rise and then a fall. Uh, Cinderella, a rise, then a fall, then a rise again. And then lastly, Oedipus, that's a fall, then a rise, then a fall. What about uh, Magic Mountain? Is that rising <laughs> Yeah, there are no loop-de-loops in any of these stories either. But I don't know. To me, it seems like a vast oversimplification to be using only whether people are happy or sad in certain parts of the story. It reminds me of what the Blacklist website tried to do a little while back by offering computer analysis of scripts for $100 oh to tell you whether the words in it sounded marketable or expensive. They canceled that, right? They did. They, they pulled it down pretty quickly after there was this, this pushback from that. So, you know, the point is there are, there are only so many basic ideas for stories to tell whether you agree with those categories or not it does boil down eventually but it's all about that execution within the familiar framework aside from maybe some avant-garde cinema no one's really reinventing the wheel these days for commercial tv and movies yeah i mean just practically going back to tv itself i mean as writers again it's always good to learn and be aware of these archetypes but beyond just being a litmus test, practically speaking, they're not really actionable writing tools. The very concept of TV shows dictates an unfinished journey. So you're going to be writing anywhere between 13 and 100 stories with the same characters. So the formula needs to be that of a TV show, not a finite story. And if you're striving to imitate those hero's journeys, then they should probably be on a macro level, i.e. the course of an entire season or a series. And of course, you know, procedural will have a broad, repeatable formula, but if you're just going to regurgitate the exact same character journey every week, then people are just going to tune out.
Yeah, I don't think that anyone's sitting in a writer's room going, all right, this week is a man riding into town or <laughs> or, is this, is it, or are we riding out of town? Um, <laughs> and then they week. go up to the next level and like, all right, are we going rags to riches or riches to rags? <laughs> like it's in TV, it does not quite apply. And I think that is a common pitfall for people who are starting to learn screenwriting is they pick up these hero's journey books and all this stuff that is traditionally written about feature screenplays with limited story arcs. And then they try to put that into an episode of TV. <laughs> Now, speaking of television, let's get down and dirty with television specifically and where inspiration versus stealing comes in. Yeah, so we've talked about this idea of expectations a number of times, but audience expectations are a huge part of their interaction with your work, and it's something that's been preset before you even type the first word on a page. Genre conventions especially. You know, What do you think makes something a cliché or a trope, Alex? Putting <laughs> me on the spot. What makes uh, something a cliche or a trope? Something that's repeated to death. Mm-hmm. That's what I would call a cliche or a trope. You can identify the very core of what you're trying to do before you even see it happening. That's a trope. Yeah, so things like that that are overdone and they're being done in the same way without adding anything new or clever or at least being self-aware of that trope. It's like picking up a brush and painting a bowl of fruit and trying to submit it for the biggest art prize in the world. You know, it's been done. You're not adding anything new. But on the flip side, it's a good exercise if you're starting out. A large part of what makes something fresh and unique is actually the subversion of the tropes uh, or artists' expectations. What made the pilot of The Shield, the awesome FX TV show The Shield, not Agents of Shield, stand out is because a real villainous character was our lead. The show is essentially about Detective Vic Mackey and his corrupted strike team. Now, in the pilot, the team prepares to take down a major drug dealer who has never been caught before. Meanwhile, Captain David Asvada installs Detective Crowley as a new member of the strike team inside undercover in order to have an inside man to root out their corruption. Now, the audience assumes, right, if you're just watching the show casually, you assume that the show will be about this undercover cop that is going to be busting out the corrupted team led by Vic McKee across multiple episodes. But, and this is a major spoiler alert, the pilot of The Shield ends with our lead character, Vic, outright killing that undercover cop in cold blood in the first episode. And that is one of the many reasons why The Shield is kind of the precursor to the anti-hero basic cable trauma that have succeeded it. Yeah, and just going into kind of those expectations and cliches and tropes and using stealing versus inspiration in comedy for a minute, I think that so much of comedy is based around parody and satire. There's so much comedy that comes from referencing other things or paying homage like we were talking about earlier. Uh, Like we said a few episodes ago, the pilot of Community was basically the breakfast club, but put into a sitcom kind of structure. Uh, The Simpsons, I think, was a watershed for that kind of referential comedy. So many of its episodes and jokes reference uh, iconic movies. Uh, We'll put a link to this great uh, video clip that's side-by-side shots of The Simpsons with the classic movies that they're referencing. Same with Rick and Morty. That is really playing into a lot of like sci-fi tropes from things like Star Trek and Doctor Who. Uh, All of this comedy is based on people having foreknowledge of these other things that we're making fun of. And like you were saying before, a lot of the time, the easiest way to get a, a joke out is to subvert something or turn something around and play with an expectation. In particular, I think comedy is about the element of surprise. So if you're repeating a joke or a gag that's been done a million times before, you're not surprising anyone and it's not going to make them laugh. Now, it's kind of interesting when you look at the stand-up world as well, because stealing jokes in stand-up is a really hot-button issue. Usually it's not going to be stealing literally word-for-word a joke from someone else's set and saying it, but it's often just a very similar joke. So it kind of, it's interesting how it differs from 
this thing that you can't steal an idea in screenwriting, but in comedy and, and joke writing, it can often be a little more serious. It can actually ruin someone's reputation to be considered a joke stealer. You know, but how can you actually determine if they literally heard that joke and decided to do it, or it was just that parallel thinking like we're talking about? In fact, people often buy jokes off of other people, so they have the right to use them, and there's no issues with that, oh, did you steal that joke or not? Can you copyright jokes? That's a great question. I'm not sure how that works, but I do know that people exchange money all the time to be like, can I use that joke in my set? Wow. Yeah, I mean, on the drama end, I don't think it's a one-to-one sort of like stealing versus inspiration uh, regarding... Uh, homages or what have you but that actually brings us to another point which is more about specking and especially specking from adapted sources and a while back i sort of received a question about um, using inspiration from a source material when you're specking an adapted show so something like game of thrones walking dead and so forth well first a spec is in of itself an adaptation of a show right the same could be said about fan fiction if you think about it the real issue behind the question is where inspiration ends and where plagiarism begins if you're using the source as only a jumping off point then that is probably fair game there's really nothing wrong with being inspired by something so it's really about how you use that inspiration. That's why we also need to look at how the show you're specking uses its own material. Ask yourself, how closely or not does the series tie to its original format? Does it actively seek out to copy narrative arcs? Or does it only bear the same names of the characters but without any of the um, attributes associated with them? Daredevil and Jessica Jones have very serialized arcs that relate to particular comic arcs and villains. And the same could be said of The Walking Dead. On the other hand, Arrow, The Flash, and Supergirl are inspired by the comics, but they really make the various DC villains and characters their own. Even some iconic comic elements present in the series, like, you know, Zoom, Vibe, Jay Garrick, Reverse Flash, are truly infused with the personality of their TV adaptation. Remember that the first rule of a spec script is to really imitate the style of the original show, which also means imitating its faithfulness towards its original work. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. You know, if a show is only very loosely based off of its original work, then you need to be kind of as faithful as the show is to its material. But let's say a show is very faithful to the original source uh, and it's not deviating from it at all. Where does your originality come into that? Should you avoid using that source material? Are you just going to up, pick up the next uh, edition of the comic book and <laughs> write word for word just a, a transcription of it? I mean, that's exactly why, personally, I think it's really difficult, if not impossible, to write a really great spec of an adapted series. Um, Game of Thrones has a complex mythology and populated world because of George Martin. And The Walking Dead has emotional baggage beca- behind um, Negan and the show because of Robert Kirkman and Charlie Adler. So really, when you're writing a spec for something that's adapted from something else, you simply cannot bury your head in the sand and ignore the source material because that's not how the show you're specking operates. If anything, you need to understand all the rules of the world and those of its adaptation. Now, that usually means you should not transpose a complete story arc and just add some TV dialogue on top of it. Greg Berlanti shows that Notorious for first looking at the central character's episodic conflict before even glancing at the DC roster. The writers want to nail what the characters are going to go through first, which will then dictate what villain is the best antithesis to that problem. Notorious in a good way, right? Like, that's a good thing for them to be doing. Well-known, yes. Notorious. I guess uh, I just love that word, notorious. They're uh, (laughs) well-known... 
twirly mustachey villains doing their thing <laughs> doing good writing good writing yes positive that's a positive word isn't notorious it? for doing a good job in fact if you're thinking of copying something beat for beat for a spec there are a few issues first of all it defeats the point of a spec a spec is here to show you can blend in with the source which in this case is the show not the comic book or book it originated from now the second thing is you run the risk of the series doing a similar run of storylines down the road and they will probably do it better than you could since they know their own show better than you the other thing is depending on how major the story arc is there's a strong chance someone out there is already specking it so you already have competition there and the last thing is your risk being branded a copycat especially if a reader is very familiar with the material and sees you copied it beat by beat is that really the kind of uh, reputation you want nick you're copying all these specs and all these adapted uh, stories just for your scripts i hope not but yeah that reminds me of something that happens when i'm being pitched to say someone's pitching a movie and it is based off of let's say romeo and juliet and then they pitch out the rough synopsis of it and it's the structural beats of romeo and juliet except maybe it's uh, a mouse and a cat or something like that. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, okay, but I know that that structure already works. You need to then go on and convince me that you're adding something original to that as well. So yeah, it can be tricky to like, if you hand in a spec that is word for word from a comic, how is someone going to stop and go, yes, this is the best writer. I really want to hire them on my show. Or I want to put them in this fellowship. They have nothing to judge it on that is yours. That is original. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point of a sample as to judge the writer, not um, the best inspiration you got it from. Uh, but just to summarize the whole point, I mean, will you be penalized for using an existing DC comic villain in a flashback? Probably not. But will you run into trouble for copying an entire issue of said DC villain? It's a definite possibility. And in fact, since all adaptations have their own degrees of faithfulness and people tend to imitate the same for the specs, it's therefore not surprising that something like Game of Thrones, which is a close adaptation of the novel to the show, is not accepted by the Warner Brothers program. And the same can be said for a lot of those very close shows. I think The Expense is another example of a show that's really close to its books, but it's not accepted by the fellowships. So watch out for that. All right, so let's say that I do really want to write a spec of a show that's on air that's based off of that, what's the best way to actually go and do my research and utilize that source material? Well, I mean, the main thing is to learn the differences between the show and the adaptation. Don't just look at the contrast in story or how characters are portrayed on the show, but really understand why the writers decided to diverge from the books. There always are specific idiosyncrasies of adaptations or thematic ideas that they focus on over others uh, regarding the original. Think of how central Catholicism in Netflix's Daredevil is compared to the same uh, classic Daredevil comic run, or how different Tyrion's portrayal in the books contrasts uh, with the show when he's played by a more popular actor, or to go to The Flash, how important is, co uh, is Cisco's character journey to becoming vibe or reverb in The Flash comics compared to the TV show? Once you've answered all those questions and contrasting those points, you really step closer to figuring out what makes the show the show and the book the book. But if you're drawn to a particular story, then you will need to find your own take of the material, all within the tone of the show. And although you may run the risk of someone using that villain in the future, if you really made that character your own, then you may still be able to use the sample in the, in the future. Infusing that original creation with your own personal take and the spirit of the TV show is ultimately what will separate stealing from adapting. 
All right, now for some takeaways. Number one, you can't really get in trouble for quote-unquote stealing ideas. I think you should feel free to borrow, use, and reference if it will help you to tell your story. Number two, there are only so many stories everything has been done before, including this episode. <laughs> I'm sure. And number three, it all comes down to your unique execution as a writer and what you will bring to it. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening, as always. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 58. And maybe in a week or two, you can get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 58 transcript. And if you would like to uh, help us out for all our hard work, you can leave us a review, uh, hopefully a positive one. <laughs> and uh, if you do that, that'll help more people listen and we can keep bringing you great episodes. And just copy someone else's review and paste it into the form. <laughs> Use it as inspiration, <laughs> paying homage to this other five-star review. And as always, thank you again to our sponsor, the Tracking Board's 2017 Launchpad Feature Competition. Our Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word at the checkout, and save $15 off their entry. You can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and their exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas to steal, send them <laughs> to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, next week, we're going to be chatting to uh, a literary manager from Circle of Confusion, uh, Daniela Garcia Bruchek. And she's going to be telling us all about yeah, what literary managers are looking for in writers and what you can do to find a manager. Get those pages ready. <laughs> and we'll see you then. See you then.